0: Holy Father, we we give you thanks for your word. It it is a light for us and a lamp for our feet. We thank you that it is a sure word. Your word is truth. We thank you that it it gives us that which we need, a a firm foundation. Thank you, O Lord that though there are things, as the Apostle Peter said in, in the writings of Paul, that are difficult to understand, we thank you that, that you give grace, that, that as Christ ascended on high and led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men, including not just the apostles, but teachers. And we thank you for the, the blessing of, of uh, the the studies, the labors, the thinking of those who've gone before, and even those who are living who help us with your word. I pray that you would bless this morning that it might be not an academic exercise, but practical, helpful, and encouraging. And we ask all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we are looking at the second half of Romans chapter 7. It's a challenging passage, I I must confess, as I prepared this lesson, I was just struck again with that, and uh, at some points in my preparation, I echoed the words of Paul, saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will help me with this text? (laughs) Um, But the Lord is faithful, and so he did. So um, let's start now with uh, reading um, Romans 7, and we're going to start at verse 13. This verse is actually, <coughs> excuse me, the opening verse is, is a bridge between the, the two halves of the chapter. So reading then from verse 13, Romans 7, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate." I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Does anybody here remember Flip Wilson? Do you remember Gerald? Gerald, for those of you who don't know, you can can go on YouTube and find some some Flip Wilson uh, videos. And and Flip Wilson was a comedian uh, from several decades ago and a very funny guy and he he did a lot of his comedy skits in in the persona of a woman named Geraldine and so i, I my son has this well back we we had a record player uh, this is going back sometime um, and the the cover of the album is is flip dressed up as Geraldine and on that album cover it says And, and on the surface of what Paul is saying uh, about uh, indwelling sin, it sounds a lot like Geraldine, but it's not. And when you look here uh, at that last verse, you'll see that, uh, he, that he's, he is assuming full responsibility when he says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I, the same I, serve the law of sin. So uh, that there is uh, a description here then of a struggle as, as though there are two people uh, in one body or something like that. But we're not talking about demonic possession. We're talking about the, the not just the human condition, and it's not the human condition in a way, it is the Christian condition. But in this chapter, you are looking at something that has been a, a battleground, not just of, of uh, sin versus me, but also Christian commentators, I guess you could say, because th- this, uh, this passage is, is one over which lots and lots and lots and lots of ink has been spilled. There are, on the one hand, those of us who believe that in verses 14 to 25, Paul is talking about a struggle that is a struggle not of a pre-Christian, not of a non-Christian, uh, not of someone speaking as a Jew representing the Jewish nation under the law, which is one what one recent very good commentary otherwise says, Um, but the struggles of a mature Christian person. On the other hand, there are those, and I I included this actually a little bit in in the handout because I just wanted you to see. There are, throughout the centuries, a lot of people who are respectable scholars, Christian scholars, who've taken the position that Paul is not describing the... uh, the struggle of a Christian, so and there, are, there are all sorts of variations of that, and you know this this on the surface in a way looks like a technical matter and something that that uh, I really wondered should I burden you with any of this because I don't want to give you details that you don't need, but on the other hand it it dawned on me that looking at why there is this divide, uh, in in understanding the chapter what are the things in the chapter that that have caused this would actually be and act, I believe actually is a key uh, or can be for unlocking it for uh, for understanding what's going on here so uh, that is uh, reality that uh, I hope to capitalize on and and again, Uh, There are people, there are notable scholars, for instance, Francis Turretin, uh, uh, one of Calvin's heirs, I guess you could say, who who taught at the academy in Geneva uh, two generations or so later, uh, takes the position of the other side, if you will. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if I'm not mistaken, also falls on that side. So we're not talking about people who are novices or or, uh, lightweights. Uh, but on the other hand, you have people like, say, John Wesley with his doctrine of Christian perfectionism. And uh, th- th- that has to be recognized, in other words, with regard to the differences here, that, that misunderstandings of this chapter have led to aberrations that have, what is it, Jim Van Erden says about bad ideas have victims? Uh, Christian perfectionism will get you in deep weeds in your Christian life. The, the notion that you can attain to a state of Christian perfection in this life uh, is something that the Bible doesn't teach, uh, but misconstruing texts like this have led to that, and it does it does cause all sorts of problems. Uh, it makes me think of uh, a charismatic... Uh, notions about faith if your faith is great enough well then you will be healed or somebody that you love we back when we were in that uh, experience we saw a family uh, drag an autistic child from one meeting to another and what a sad sad thing it was so so all this to say th- there are weeds that we want to steer out of but there are also respectable commentators who disagree with me and i, I uh, in laboring to prepare for this, I spent a considerable amount of time reading uh, a recent very well respected commentary from that angle so but now let 's go on t- to asking what are the things that cause people to think the opposite of of what I think or, of what the basically the reform position has been over the years and i could I should say the Augustinian position as well. it goes back quite a ways. Uh, well, in this chapter, uh, Paul is, is delving into further uh, some things about the law. Because Paul, as on the one hand, a man who had been a devout Jew with a very high view of the law, has some seemingly negative things to say about the law of God. Now, by the way, I'm going to use the word law Uh, Some commentators will say, let's talk about the law of Moses. But, I mean, what is the law of Moses? Well, at the top, it's the ten words. It's the ten commandments. It's the moral law. And so when I say law, that's what I intend. Uh, So uh, the, the, uh, the, the thing is, Paul is saying that the law won't get you saved. But here he's also saying the law also will not get you sanctified. And so it is of great value and importance for us to, to understand what the law does and doesn't do. So um, anyway, but in the course of this, uh, explaining that, and really the two main things that this section uh, is about are, one, you know, what, what, are, what are the purposes of the law, and, you know, why does Paul seem to say negative things? And he's, he is responding to critics and anticipated criticism in, in what he says here, in his doctrine of the law. That, that's one thing. The other thing is that Paul is detailing some very important things about Christian experience. And in this I differ with the, the people who take the other view of who the I is here. So... Now, looking at chapter 7, verse 14, Paul says this, and I'll start at verse 13. Did that which is good, so he's anticipating uh, 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 an accusation here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Of course not. No, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, now, by the way, we have a statement of two divine purposes there uh, with the law. We'll come back to. Notice this, though. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Now, notice he switched from saying the law is good and righteous and holy to the law is spiritual. In order to draw a contrast here, the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Uh, carnal is the way the King James renders it, I believe, sold under sin. And those who say Paul couldn't possibly be talking about Christian experience point to this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, can I get somebody to flip over back to chapter 6 and read out loud for me from verses 11 through verse 14 of Romans chapter 6? Okay. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, The key verse here that I want you to take note of is verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. Okay, do you see the tension between that and Paul saying we have been sold under sin? It's very that's very strong wording. Very strong wording. Uh, and th- this is one of the things that the other side, so to speak, points to, sold under sin. Uh, and by the way, it's a past participle, so it's something, it speaks of something in the past with continuing consequences uh, in, into the present. So, But I would submit this is a key. How is it somebody who's been freed from sin can still be said to be dealing with sin to this extent that... that there's still a slavery to it. How can that be? And that's, that's really, in a way, the big question. So now, just to elicit a little further, okay, why the divide here? Paul uses very emotional language, uh, very emotive language, and, and it's, oh, wretched man that I am. And he, there, there is an anguish to this passage that, again, that people have said I couldn't possibly be a Christian, but they are wrong. And so, and then w- with regard to this word carnal, well, you know, Paul does use it for, uh, of Christians in First Corinthians chapter three, for for instance, when he says you, the fact that you've got factions indicates you're still carnal. So uh, there, uh, th- 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 that doesn't by any means show. This position to be correct. So anyway, there is the big thing. How is it that somebody who's saved, somebody who's been set free, somebody for whom Jesus died to liberate them from sin and its penalties, how is it that such a person could still be struggling in this way? And so that is that is really our big question here. So now let me take a brief detour and and show you a something that, that will help us a little further down the road, and that is I've included in your handout two quotations from our Westminster Standards, one from chapter 13 on sanctification. This is about sanctification. And the Confession, 13, verse section 2 says, this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part whence arises a, a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now, notice if you look underneath that the passage is cited that Romans 7 is one of them. And so I, I give you this uh, to help in a couple ways, but one of those is to see our confessional position, even though the, the confession is not exegeting this particular passage, it references it as evidence for its doctrine of sanctification. So, that's, uh, th- that's all to say, you know, th- this is our historic understanding. So, now, I w- before I proceed further, now, I've, I put a question in your handout, and I want to ask you this. Okay, just supposing that I'm correct, that the plain reading of, of the I of Romans that references Paul, Paul not as a pre-Christian, as a Jew, but as a Christian, um, does what he's describing here reflect the experience, at least at times, of anyone in this room? Raise your hand if it does. <clears throat> Okay, I didn't see a whole lot of hands, but I saw some. Uh, Have you ever struggled with a sin or sins and felt like you were on the losing side of the battle? Have you had that experience? Uh, Let me give a few examples that may just... um, Has it ever occurred to you that maybe you should rein in your tongue? And that you were given to saying things that you shouldn't say. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe you should deal with your temper. And that perhaps you were given to fits of anger. An expression of it that you needed to change. Has it ever happened to anybody here. And you don't need to nod to this. That you were dealing with pornography for instance. Or you, thoughts uh, going through your mind that you knew didn't belong there. Uh, have you ever wanted someone else's stuff? Uh, so, um, I mean, the bottom line is, I'm asking, have you ever sinned? Uh, but I'm am also asking you have, especially you, ever had a battle between your two ears? Uh, because you should all answer yes. Uh, there there is there is ample Christian experience uh, that matches up with this chapter. And I will tell you that one of the reasons, I mean, I've looked over so many commentaries, I can't keep my mind straight about what I read where, but uh, that, that address these questions and that argue pro or against one way or the other looking at this. But one of the things that really convinces me is this. This is a real struggle, and there are real issues uh, that are addressed here that really are not addressed anywhere else in the Bible in, in this fashion and fullness. I mean, one of the things we were taught in seminary uh, was to ask the question, what does this passage contribute that is unique, that is peculiar? What does this add to the canon of Scripture and uh, you know, of course, a lot of things are repeated in Scripture, but there are also things peculiar, uh, this part or that part. So what is the, there is no other passage anywhere in Scripture that I know of that does what this passage does. Mm-hmm. And Christian experience, and, and I can speak as a pastor who, you know, who's done a, certainly a measure of pastoral counseling, th- there's nowhere else to go like this for dealing with some of the things that we face in helping another person through a tight spot. So those are th- those are things that I think are uh, of, of considerable merit and importance in uh, in understanding this chapter. So uh, anyway, uh, th- that's th- those those things together are uh, among the reasons that I'm convinced this this is uh, that that the historic Augustinian position for understanding this is correct. Paul is writing this, not as a beginner, but as a Christian man, writing not of somebody else's experience, but of his own, and yet he is writing of somebody else's experience because what he's describing is everyone's experience who is a Christian truly and who is maturing and going on in in the faith. So, uh, that's... Uh, that's it's tremendously important and helpful to get this right. So, all right, before we actually get into go, kind of going through it, I did say verse by verse, but we're going we're gonna to do it a little differently. We're going to do it more idea by idea. This chapter is a bridge between chapter 6, where Paul, Paul's drawing out implications of the idea of union with Christ that he developed in the last half of chapter 5, so, uh, and, and toward the end of that, he says, the law entered that sin might multiply. But, but then uh, he, he asked the question then, so, so where, where sin abounded, grace did the more abound, he says in chapter five, but then he begins chapter six. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we have a free pass now? I mean, if, 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 I mean, if grace multiplies, isn't that a good thing? Uh, and he says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. No, and so he develops uh, the uh, implications, or some of the implications of the fact that when you believe in Jesus, when you are truly saved, what happens is you're taken out of Adam, and you're put in Christ, You, uh, your head is no longer Adam, your head is Christ, your federal representative, he is the head of the covenant, um, and you're joined to him, and the implications of that are so far-reaching, so profound, that you, you could spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, so, shall we continue sin? No, don't you know you're joined to Christ now? Don't you know, therefore, that you died to sin? So, you die, you're you dead to sin on the one hand. And so, he develops that idea. You have been set free. You have been set free. Then, of course, that, of course, seems to be at a tension with what Paul is saying here. And the reason for that is it's not quite as simple as we might wish it were. Isn't that often the case? (laughs) I I mean, you you know this word nuance is useful here and there. Uh, There are nuances to this. You have been set free. You cannot make excuses and just say, oh, that's just how I am. That's just how I am. My daddy was like that. My mama was like that. That's just how I am. Can't help it. No, you can't say that. No, Paul says, no, 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 no. No, take up the fight. So, so, and here's why you can do it. You died with Christ. You died to sin and the law, as he says, beginning this chapter here. But so does that mean it's all settled? No, it's a little more complicated And then when we get to chapter 8, he begins to open this up and show how it actually really works. Although there's a beginning of that in chapter 6. Reckon yourself, therefore, to be dead to sin and alive to God. Getting your thinking right is important. So so chapter 7 fits in the middle there, explaining why Paul speaks these seemingly negative things about the law and showing... That sanctification includes this element of struggle. Okay, so now notice uh, then uh, that uh, when we get to verse 14 of chapter 7, Paul does ascribe to divine purposes. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I'm sorry, let me back up. Verse 13 is is where those purposes are. It was sin producing death in me, making, making me more worthy of punishment, dragging me down, worsening my character, and so forth. Through what is good, now listen to this, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What happens with the law is as we become aware of it, as Paul's already begun to show before this, is there's something in us that says, no, I won't. Think of your children. I mean, you... you, you, deal with people, I'm sure, who will tell you that um, man is basically good. You know, there's this great speech in Secondhand Lions, that Uncle Hub's speech about, you know, of, of uh, uh, how a boy becomes a man. And, and the great flaw in that is that he says human nature is basically good. Um, it ain't. Uh, so, let's see, where was I? So, Paul is saying one of God's purposes with the law is to expose sin. And it provokes. It is a good thing, but it's like a cattle prod. It provokes. It provokes that rebellious thing in us. uh, And brings it out, brings it to the surface. Uh, so, now, can anybody think of an instance in Scripture where we've encountered something like that? I'll give you a hint. Among the kings of Israel, can you think of any where, we, where Scripture actually tells us that God was doing something like that? And I'm not going to flip back there because I don't remember the exact references, but it's found in Kings and one other place. Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Hezekiah there are indications that God withdrew presence from Hezekiah in order to expose sin in his heart. Now, let me ask a related question, this time concerning an unbeliever. When the Scripture tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, does that mean that God was creating additional evil to what was already there? What was he doing then? What does God's spirit by common grace do in the hearts of unbelievers? Restrains the evil. So what God was doing in Pharaoh's heart that's said to be he hardened it is that he withdraws that restraining. And consequence is the man plunges headlong to his own destruction in wickedness. So, so the law is given to expose sin, which it does by provoking it. And as it does that, we see, oh my, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> so, alright, so that's that's an important thing to, to understand as we go through this passage. Now, I'm going to bring in another idea that's uh that is found from a more of an overview of paul's uh writings does anybody does anybody here is anybody here familiar with the phrase the now and the not yet can anybody tell me okay what am i saying when i talk about the now and the not yet Right, we don't have the fullness of it. Okay, you may remember that from time to time, you might have heard Pastor Stewart talk about the rupture. I think he even used the word herniation, like a hernia, in and, and, and reference to the age to come. In the scriptures are all kinds of things that talk about the marvelous, wonderful things that God will do. And now for the Jew, these were all future they were viewed as things that would come with, with Messiah, with the age to come. But they were all reckoned to be future. But in the Apostle Paul's writings, what we, and not just Paul's, what we see is that wonderful future has broken in to this present evil age. It's here now, in part, in part. And here is part of the answer then to the question that I posed. How is it that we can be freed from sin and yet not freed from sin? Well, here is your answer. The blessing of freedom from sin is a future benefit. It is a benefit of the age to come. Christ died to free us from the penalty of sin. We have that already in our justification. But in regard to sanctification, we will be fully sanctified when? In glory, and so the sanctification, the the degree to which we are made remade into the likeness of Jesus, is partial in this life. The freedom from sin is not fulfilled. There are many things that Scripture tells us are ours already, and yet we have them. We have, for instance, the Holy Spirit as a what and a deposit, an earnest of our inheritance and not the fullness uh, of it. So that is part of what's going on here because the freedom that chapter 6 speaks of is only fulfilled fully when the age to come is fully arrived. Okay, does this make sense? Okay, so, so having the uh, eschatological perspective, if I can use a $4 word, uh, is, is helpful here. Okay, so now let's look now more uh, at some of the big things here. The, the, this, and the reason, one reason I said I, I changed my mind about doing verse by verse is there is a measure of repetition here for emphasis. Paul develops ideas, but this, the, there are several ideas that are repeated. Okay, the first thing is Paul is, is pointing out it is an aspect of the Christian life that you and I develop have to contend earnestly with something that we call indwelling sin. We are born with it. It is part of our heritage from Adam. It's also called original sin. We're, we're born with it, and it is an ongoing reality, even for mature Christians. Anybody here ever read The Man in the Mirror? Patrick Morley's book. I did it many years ago, I don't remember much of it, actually. It's a good book. But I do remember this, that 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 Morley uh, describes a, an experience where he thought he was pretty far along in his sanctification and not dealing with certain kinds of temptation. And then he's, he's in a, a major city in New York, Washington, something like that, has to take a cab somewhere, and he's not the only one getting in the cab. And in next to him squeezes this young woman who's very well endowed, wearing a very revealing outfit. And all of a sudden he realizes, nope, had not conquered that one yet. And that's, those things happen. There are those sudden uh, onsets of things that real, make us realize, no, nah, we're, we're not through dealing with that temper or tongue or whatever. So indwelling sin is a reality. And it's better to be made aware of it than to be surprised by it. So, now, that's, that's the first point. Okay, the second is that the law, God's law, is not to blame for anything. Now, Paul's already dealt with that some in the previous section. Uh, you cannot say, even though the law provokes sin, that the law is sin. No, it's, the law is divine. The law is a revelation. And again, I'm speaking moral law. The law, particularly, the moral law, particularly, is a revelation of God's holiness. It is part of the fabric of the universe. Uh, and there are, again, here there are nuances. We won't try and go into all those. But it, the law cannot be blamed for my sin. It's my sin and not the law that brings about the bad results. Okay, then the next thing is uh, something I've mentioned already, and that is one of God's main purposes for the law is to expose sin by provoking sin. Now, th- this isn't the only place Paul says this. Of course, you, 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 I trust you'll remember Romans three He says, "There shall no flesh be justified by the law, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. sin the, the law is what makes us aware." It, it, he mentions here the, the tenth commandment, "Do not covet," and uh, of course, it's, he doesn't. He doesn't give an object to the verb covet because he's coveting It, it, it represents any and every kind of illegitimate desire that we might have. Uh, So, (coughs) excuse me. But Paul says, that was what really showed me that I was not so good as I thought I was. And now it's interesting, if you contrast this with with his Pharisee perspective in what he says in Philippians chapter 3, a Pharisee of the Pharisees and, you know, basically... Righteous and holy and all I did is, is the, the sum of what he says there. That's the Pharisaic perspective. And I might add, that is alive and well, as Marshall said last week, a lot, uh, today. That is the shallow perspective. That is the perspective of the rich young ruler. All these things I have kept since my youth. I remember years ago, someone I worked for said, I come from a long line of Christians. I was born a Christian, and I thought, that's troubling. (laughs) Uh, No, it doesn't work like that. So, the law exposes the law, and so it is as you become aware of how high the bar is set, you realize, oh, goodness, hadn't thought about that. Now, Can anybody paraphrase maybe a few things from the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount that illustrate this? You have heard that it was said, you shall do no murder. But, what did Jesus say? If you are angry, you know, some manuscripts say with your brother without cause, So what he's saying is God sees the heart. God knows what's going on there. And the the law addresses what happens in your heart. Then there's the seventh commandment. You have heard said of old that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look in the wrong way, you have broken the commandment. And uh, Jacob Right, so where's the problem? The heart. The heart. heart.
1: Right,
0: right. But, what does Jeremiah say about the heart? Jeremiah 17, the heart is... Let's start, stop there for a moment with deceitful. Deceitful. Self-deception is, is I don't know if I'd say hardwired, actually. I, I was going to say that. I'm not sure that I would, we could quibble that expression. But it, it's, it's pretty deeply rooted. Pretty deeply rooted. Uh, for those of you who... who know a little bit about 20th century Reformed theology, Greg Bonson did a doctoral dissertation on self-deception, which I need to get a copy of one of these days. But, uh, yeah, we don't, we, we deceive ourselves. P- Paul ha- says here, sin deceived me. Sin, my sin, and of course my sin is also myself. Myself. So so this is this is a biggie for us to recognize and Paul goes so far as to say here, in my flesh in me, that is in my flesh, there is nothing good. Now uh, there, uh, there are people who don't like that who think well that's not Christian, but it's what he says here and I, I, I must confess after having, looked at some of the spilled ink about this from the other side, I still think it's a stretcher to say he's not talking about his own Christian experience. Have you ever had that experience where you realize all of a sudden, let's just say, uh, hypothetically, many of you in here are married, you've had an argument with your spouse, and you are right, and you know she is wrong, or he as the case would be with 50% of you. Have you ever experienced conviction after such an argument in which God showed you the ugliness of your own behavior? Well, I have. I'm I'm glad the rest of you haven't, but uh, I have. Uh, I mean, my wife can vouch for that, so... uh, So, anyway, yeah. So... God exposes sin. Now, that that brings us to another point, and that is uh, what can the law do and what can't it do? So let, let's read again. For we know that the law is spiritual, and no problem with the law, but I am a flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have a desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Well, anyway, does the law help him in any way uh, in regard to what it requires? The law is revelation from God. It gives us information. It convicts. It tells us about the penalties, all those things, the threatenings and so forth. It doesn't lift a finger. It's not designed to lift a finger to actually enable. The law does not impart ability. Now, the next thing is, not only is the law unable, is there another party here who's also not able it's interesting paul in 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 Greek and hebrew uh, a, a verb typically implicitly carries with it the pronoun so that you you can write a sentence with without the actual na- or pronoun and it's still a grammatical sentence but When you do include the pronoun, it's usually for emphasis. And in chapter 7 of Romans, you have the Greek pronoun for I, ego. The ego in English? Ego, I, 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 I. Uh, So Paul's, Paul's talking a lot about himself, but he's talking about himself representing all of us. And he says over and over and over, I'm losing this battle. I can't do it. I can't do it. That's significant. You can't do it. Now, if that were the end of the story, we would all be in despair. But it's not. It's not. What's the upside of this? Let's read verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the cry of anguish. It's not a cry of despair. It is a cry of anguish. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with it, well, really more for those who are not uh, Charles Spurgeon's Checkbook of the Bank of Faith is a wonderful devotional reading. It's, it's one of the earliest Bible promise books. And he has a, a, a reading uh, from Matthew's Gospel You shall call him Jesus, for he will deliver his people from their sins. And now, what does that mean? From the penalty of sin? Yes, but also from sin's power. From its grip on you, he will deliver you. And uh, I can't tell you what date it is, but uh, you can look it up. It's wonderful reading. That's what Jesus means. He will deliver us. Now, of course, we've only gotten a glimpse, a taste of that here, because we get the fullness of it in the next chapter. But he's saying, where you are impotent, Christ is omnipotent. He can deliver conquer it. And, and, and so the the thing is we've, we, we do need to realize keeping the law not only is not going to get us saved, it's not going to get us sanctified. The law informs us. but And, and the thing is, why does, why does he show us this? Because all too often this is what we fall into. The, the, there are many different kinds of legalism. Marshall Talked about that last week, as I recall. Uh, one of those is to, to I, I can do this. I can do this. You know, he, he mentioned the Nike slogan, just do it. Uh, just do it. Well, I mean, there, there's a time and a place for that. Yes, uh, resolve is, is important, but you can't do it by yourself. You, I mean, that's being like the two-year-old or the three-year-old. I can do it. I don't need any help. That's right. Yeah, that's actually in the Gospels. Yeah. So, but this is something that we need hammered in because all too commonly we fall into this habit of thinking, don't we? I can do it. I can do it. I'll pray about this tomorrow, but I can do it. Uh, and, And, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in sermon preparation... That's how I've acted. And of all things where you need the Spirit of God at work in you, it, it, yeah, this is it. And, I mean, a shame to say it, but even stepped into the pulpit and prayer was an afterthought. Uh, not really a good idea, but I don't think I'm peculiar in that. Only Christ can conquer sin. So then, uh, that's, uh, that's a, a biggie. Now, notice, throughout this chapter, Paul makes no mention of the power of the Holy Spirit. He makes no mention of the Spirit. That's not accidental. It's deliberate. It, it's, it, it is showing us that, that, that the way of looking at the Christian life and just do it is destined for failure. Okay, so... That that I think fairly well summarizes. There's all sorts of details here that uh, that you know I'm not going to cover, but uh, that fairly well gets through the main things. So then now let's draw out some implications. Think with me. What if you are? having this struggle and you wake up and realize it what would you do well I mean you're having a struggle you're dealing with a besetting sin that you just can't seem to get rid of and then you come to realize that what do you do where do you start very good very good. You repent. Now, why or what are you repenting of? Sin. Sin? How, could we be more specific? Sinful heart. Sinful heart. Self reliance. Self reliance. Where is faith in this? Doesn't seem to be part of the equation, does it? You repent. Okay, what do you do next? Cry out to God for mercy. Cry out to God for mercy. Yeah. Um, there, there's an interesting. Uh, thing in the beginning chapter of 2nd Corinthians where Paul says now I don't want you to be ignorant brothers of the trials that we faced in Asia where we were in such grave danger that we didn't think we're going to live through it now does anybody remember what follows that and Paul saying but here was God's purpose in that this happened that we learn not to trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Now there's a mature Christian man saying I was acting self-reliant and God had to do this to correct me. So that there, I mean, it's, well, for one thing, it's a, it's a good idea to pray first rather than last. So uh, anyway, okay, well, Let's uh, let's let's now work on some implications. If you're having a struggle with a besetting sin, uh, what sorts of wrong ideas could you get in your mind? What what, uh,
2: Phyllis? I think that when when I struggle <clears throat> with particular sins, my tendency is to believe. That here I go again, and I have failed Jesus, and He doesn't want to hear my prayers.
0: Mm, so God is angry with you because yep. of all those failures. Okay, good, very good. That's that is that is one thing. Okay, uh, Jacob. Uh, one
1: way that uh, I used to deal with sin is that I would whip myself um, for a couple days mm-hmm. um, before I came back to mm-hmm. God and confessed my
0: sin. Mm-hmm. So you have a hair shirt in your closet or something like that? Take cold showers? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Um, other. Can anybody think of some other things that, uh, that, that you might mistakenly think when you're not conquering Besetting uh, oh, well, anyway, sin. So right. I'm still saved, so it's okay. Um, uh, or despair.
1: Uh, despair. To, to wallow in that sin or to stay there, like Jacob was saying, um, to take this that Paul says, the wretched man that I am, who will deliver me this body of death as a rhetorical question versus one that has an answer
0: yeah, um, you, you might despair and think no one <laughs> no one um, any other suggestions
3: Eric. i think another
1: one would be um we start to compare ourselves to others and say well i'm not as bad as the- everybody does this and you kind of just Sweep it under the rug.
0: And just not so really maybe kind of justifying the behavior rather than continuing concerned about it. Okay, Steve, uh, I see your hand. The, uh, hold on, Steve. Here we go. So the recording. Hears you.
1: There's the Arminian idea that since we're saved by grace, it doesn't matter what sins we commit. They're already forgiven. So we don't have to worry about it. We can do what we want.
0: Yeah, that's antinomian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, uh, I see another hand. And then, actually, a couple hands.
2: I think whether we're willing to admit it or not, a lot of the times we just blame it on someone else for causing us to have those actions.
0: Okay, so, so blame shifting can also be a response. Okay. Uh, one I can think of is to conclude that you're just not trying hard enough. Another right. one
1: would be going off of the, you shall know them, bear their fruits, and then concluding that because the fruit that you just displayed
0: was so awful, you can't be a Christian because you had bad fruit. Bingo. Very, uh, very good. Very good. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, th- th- these are all very good answers, and... and things uh, to think about. Okay, so on the one hand, okay, you, you, you conclude, I must have gotten off the hamster wheel, I'm going to get back on it. Um, and uh, so, not trying hard enough. Um, now, there, I mean, there can be cases when we need to exert ourselves and haven't been. But, in, the, in a way, the, very, the last one is, is the worst, uh, that we despair concerning our own salvation. We are so far lacking assurance that we wonder, how could I have done that? How can I be continually falling into this ditch, this mud, and be a Christian? Maybe I'm not really saved. Now, my guess is, Phyllis, you have probably had to deal with that, I imagine, in counseling. I have. Uh, we, We run into this where there is despair. Christians shouldn't be struggling with these things. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And especially when you consider that God for his own wise and holy purposes sometimes does withdraw grace in order to expose the darkness of our hearts and leave us to contend with those things. I didn't put it in your handout, but I'm going to read to you uh, a third passage from the Westminster Confession. This is from the chapter on assurance. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it by falling into some special sin which wounded the conscience and grieved the spirit by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering, even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. It doesn't end there, by the way. Yet they are never utterly destitute of the seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit... This assurance may in due time be revived. So, uh, all that to say that there are, in God's dealings with us, sometimes these times where the Lord exposes us by withdrawing grace. Uh, I I will give you an illustration from pastoral ministry. Uh, The Lord has kept me all these days, and yet I've had my share of desertions, But I have seen a number of pastors over the years fall into adultery. And without giving any examples, I can just say this. I think in some instances it had a lot to do with pride. God knows the proud from afar. And God is not happy with pride. And so we're we're coming to an application now that will speak to that. But there are those things. And when you are in that besetting sin, stuck there place, uh, you you don't need to be beat up. You don't need to be... uh, How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, now how many of you have ever been in Doubting Castle? And what does giant despair do to Christian and faithful every day? He beats them. You don't need to be beaten, do you? Or maybe you do? I, I, I think not. So, so having a struggle with sin does not mean you're not saved. It is actually if you are struggling, if you are where Paul says you are here. Let me reread that again. <coughs> so he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh Sold under sin, I do not understand. Now, by the way, that should probably be rendered, I do not acknowledge. Uh, It's the verb to know. And in this case, it means I don't approve. I don't acknowledge my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, can anybody give me a catechism uh, answer? What is repentance? Repentance. Or at least some of the elements of repentance. It means a turning away from sin, does it not? And a returning to God. But Thomas, Thomas, Thomas Watson's got a very good book on this. But it also includes a hatred of the sin. There are people who reform their lives without ever really hating sin. This is a key thing. If, if you hate your own sin... Even if you're stuck in it, that's a good sign. It's a good sign. Yeah, you are taking God's part. Paul. That's why Paul says, I agree with the law. I confess what it says is right and good. I approve. I, I love it, though I don't seem able to do it. So that's, that's significant. It is a sign of life. Okay, now let's go to some applications then. And I would say the very first thing... In, in applying this is understanding, understanding. Here we have an unfolding of an aspect of the Christian life, one where we don't w- want to be, nevertheless. Okay, but there, there are other things for us to understand, and some of them, of course, we don't get to till chapter 8. But plenty there. But Romans 6 had this, where Paul said... Uh, let me find the verse. Sin will not have will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. There is a promise, and God gives us promises. But in a way, we our part in sanctification is we pray those promises. Do we not? God is not a man that he should lie or change. So he says, "Reckon yourselves." to be dead to sin. Okay, so and there is the understanding. We need to understand Christ has died to free me. That is God's purpose. It is God's purpose that I should be holy and blameless before him in love, as it says in another place. Uh, there, there is a matter of understanding. That's the place God's leading me to. It is his purpose to get me there. It is his promise to get me there. I'm going to lay hold of that with both hands, as David Clarkson would say. Lay hold of it. Understand these things are true. Understand also that you can't do it. You cannot get sanctified pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't climb this mountain on your own. So understanding. So these fundamental things. that Paul will say from time to time, know this or knowing this and So it's important, these fundamental concepts. Jesus died to free you from the power of sin. Reckon that you died with him. Your old man died with him. That's that's basic. But also understand you can't do this alone. Recognize the battle. Now, by the way, just, just in case you might think this is peculiar to Paul... I will pull up a couple other passages that that show okay this is this is the other apostles talked about it too keep your conduct I'm sorry previous verse beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul 1 peter 2 verse 11 so peter says yeah there's a battle That you're fighting. Then there is Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin. Struggle against sin. Struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. For a Christian whom God is calling to martyrdom. There is a temptation to recant. And some have done it. Uh, one of the uh, Martyrs in Fox's book, Thomas Bilney, recanted and went through a prolonged season of darkness after that. But he eventually did like Cranmer and said, I shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have done that. No. We are saved by Jesus through faith alone. And he paid the price. So <clears throat> um, Uh, The understanding these things is, is, is something that we need to exert ourselves to do. Okay, then the second thing is this. Okay, when you consider that there are many ways in which you can sin that no one else is ever going to know. Many ways, because it's all between your two ears. John Flavel has a wonderful book, uh... Are we doing that in dead theologians? Keeping the heart, keeping the heart. The proverb says, keep your hearts with all diligence. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. The Puritans made a practice of daily self-examination, asking themselves at day's end, how did I do? How did I treat my neighbor?" How did I love God? How did I fail? It is a good idea to practice self-examination uh, in, in order to fight this battle. So that, that is a second thing. And by the way, I, I have to confess, uh, there, there was a great Scottish uh, pastor, theologian in the 18th century, uh, James Fraser, and I, I, I'm using his help Uh, In in making these points of application. Um, So. uh, uh, Getting your thinking right. That is understanding. Keeping the heart. Okay then there's a third thing. Marshall said something. I think very true. And very profound last week. In his lesson. About sanctification. Having everything to do. With keeping our eyes on Jesus. With reflecting on Jesus, uh, with pondering, what did Jesus do for you? What what did Jesus do for me? And here again, you can't bootstrap your way in, and you can't, even when you know, this is what I need to do, this is what I should do, this is what I want to do. Help comes as we look at the loveliness of Christ, as we look at the sufferings of Jesus for us as we look at his self-denial as, as we consider who he is you know one of the most staggering places in scripture that my wife and I keep going back to is Matthew 11 which, which has parallels uh, Mark and Luke where Jesus says this Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, looking to Jesus, like it says in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, is is the first step in coming to Jesus, pondering. And then he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I, this is God speaking, Am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. So, having your eyes on Christ. Getting your eyes onto Christ when they weren't. is, Is a big issue here in application. And then the last one that I want to mention is... Keeping the heart, now take heart. Take heart. Are you the only one who's ever had a struggle like this? No. Paul says this is not abnormal. Especially when you consider that business of keeping the heart and and realize how far short you fall when you consider the what the law says, the, you realize you fall short. Paul is saying here, we all fall short. it's It's not a, a cause for giving up. It's not a cause for despair. This is part of the Christian life. It's part of the Christian life. and and so God, enables us as we recognize our own utter poverty and as we go to him for his riches. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. How much more then will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit those who ask
4: questions or comments Dave yeah the whole controversy about whether this was you know past tense uh, with Paul's life or current reality in Paul's life has always perplexed me because of just what i we learn about the analogy of scripture or that if you're puzzled about what Paul is meaning you go to other writings of Paul like Galatians yes. 517 for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit against the flesh for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things that you want to do so he's he's taught all along that there's a spiritual struggle so this, is, this passage is completely consistent with that and so it seems like those who want to push it into Paul's past life just want to somehow deny that reality of ongoing struggle and spiritual warfare that we, it's got to be in the forefront of our minds that this is something that's, we're just going to be engaged in. Like the Confession says, it's a, uh, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the law. So it's it's going to be with us till the day we die. So we have to, yeah. you know, engage in it. And, and yeah. it tells us in the next chash, chapter, it's all with the Spirit's help. But we, yeah. we can't deny it.
0: Yes, very good. Thank you, Dave. Jacob.
1: I think one application that, um, that, that we can miss, that I miss a lot, is also rejoicing in the trial or the temptation. Um, in 1 Peter 4, it talks about not being surprised um, by the fiery trial, which is mm-hmm. to come upon you to test you mm-hmm. as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Um, you know, this these trials the um, which accompany our our temptations, right. our opportunities to rejoice that we're no longer in Adam, but we're in Christ who has won the won the fight, who has won right. the battle and who has given us the victory, and that we share in that victory when
0: we fight sin right. okay, very good um, any other Comments or
2: questions? Phyllis. Well, first of all, thank you so much for this and for uh, kind of bringing it to a close with Matthew 11. Um, My favorite Christmas song is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And I was listening to... uh, Tish Harrison talk on some podcasts this week um, about our our longing for him to come back, like to see him in the clouds. But she brought a, a particular emphasis to the the idea that Jesus is he's coming to us all the time, and. That's the kind of merciful Savior that he is.
4: Hmm.
0: He does visit us.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and and I need to know all the time that he's nearby, close to me.
0: Um, This makes me think, uh, for those of you who are not familiar, um, the letters of Samuel Rutherford deal a lot with this. Rutherford uh, was one of the Westminster divines, one of the Scottish commissioners, and his letters are a devotional classic pastor. He did, he did more pastoring by mail than most of us have ever done in person. Um, and th- they are masterpieces of... of uh, th- they will feed your soul. And he talks about this. He t- wrote a book uh, that got him thrown in prison and in a dark, cold place. And so, spent a lot of time alone, but Jesus also visited him there. And he talks about that in, in those letters. So, just something to, to look for in your uh, stocking in a week. Uh, uh, letters of Samuel Rutherford. Okay, any other comments and questions? Okay, Cindy, I, hold on just a moment till you get the mic. Okay.
3: Um. I hope I can put this in the right perspective because it's something that really helps me. Jesus comes to us in tiny ways, and we have to look for it. Like um, when I can't find something, um, and I search, and I all of a sudden Jesus. Shows me where it is, or just like today, I was in a hurry to get my hymns and I'd had very little time. And I turned right to um, like three of them, just turned the pages, and there they were. These are it idiot- when I'm cooking a huge, heavy casserole and I'm scared to death to this day of fire. And I pray and I go, Jesus, help me do this. I can't do this. I'm scared of fire. And he'll help me get that out, and and I'll go, oh, thank you, Jesus. Just they are just all kinds of little ways when you're sad and you hear a bird song or something that you know the ringing of a church bell, or those are comforts that your Lord is bringing to you. They are they are things that help you get through each day, and. He did all sorts of those kinds of things when we lost Stephen. Mm. And it was just really, really living from minute to minute to minute and just reaching out to him and going, Oh Jesus, help me. Mm. And and we have to look for those little things. They're the little things that can trip us up, but there are so many little things. To console us. And to lift us up. Mm. And he says. If God is for you. Who can be against you?
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you Cindy. Thank you for sharing that. Um, any others. Or. thinking we probably should go ahead and wrap up. Uh, so why don't we do that. Let's. Let's. Return thanks and. Father, we we thank you for your holy word. Thank you, O Lord, that uh, scripture gives us insight so so that we can understand this struggle. That it's not an indication that we're still lost. That it's not something about which we should beat ourselves up. That you've allowed it in order to disclose sin, and our need of Christ, we thank you that you've shown us that Christ is there and will be there and will deliver us. I pray, Lord, that you would make this useful uh, uh, to all of us by enabling us to ponder it, remember it, and uh, perhaps bring it to bear in the lives of other people around us. So as we go out, Lord, may we go out worshiping you. In Jesus' name, Amen.